0: Anybody got a, who's got an actual Bible? All you old school people. Anybody got a, look at that, a real one. A real Bible in the wild. That's awesome. You don't see that real. <laughs> Somebody, I, I use my iPad most of the time for my Bible, my phone. But I do have this big horse Bible up here. You know, you just carry around like, and, and so if I really, if I want to get serious, I'll open this up. But right now I just use it to prop up my iPad. That's probably, some of you guys are like, I don't think that's right, but it is what it is. <laughs> Um, if you will open your Bible or scroll in your Bible, whichever way works for you, um, we're going to start in Mark chapter six. I'm going to jump off with the scripture there. We've been doing a series called Wisdom and Power. Um, experienced a little bit of that power this morning, uh, in how God was moving, and words of knowledge and different things were happening. Some really cool things that happened, uh, but also wisdom and how to operate in that. That's one of the things that we do as a team uh, when we hear God moving on a Sunday morning or see God doing something. Part of what we're doing is trying to figure out and administrate what the Lord is doing this morning, what the Spirit of God is trying to accomplish in His own church. Go figure, right? So that's always a challenge, and it's a journey that we always have as leaders. And so part of what we do is we just go, hey, Lord, what are you saying? And then what do we do about it? You know, the two disciples, um, two questions of a disciple is true for us as a church as well, uh, true for us as a movement, true for us as a family, whatever that looks like. Um, Mark came up to me. Uh, Mark Williams always wave. Mark's one of our deacons, Mark and Suzette came up to him and he said, I had this picture of uh, the last battle in the lion, witch, in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. You know, he's, God uses him a lot. Um, <laughs> but he said "How you know, that when the battle looks to be lost, the, you know, the lion comes out, the lion of the tribe of Judah comes out, and he roars. And, he, and that roar does two things. It's a call to action for those who are fighting on his side, right? That, that you're not alone. He's with you. As a matter of fact, he's leading you. Right? Whether you could see him or not at the time, he's still leading in the battle. And the second is a warning to those who oppose him, right? And that's part of what we get to do as, as believers. Um, there's this great story, it's fictional, but I wish it were true, about Bear Bryant recruiting this new, um, this new football player. Some of you guys have heard this, but he said, uh, um, he tells his son, he said, you know, there's that player that when he gets knocked down, he goes, he jumps right back up. And he goes, that's awesome. He goes, yeah, that's a great, I want to be that. And then he says, you know, then there's a player, when he gets knocked down, he'll lay there for a minute, but he'll gather himself, and he'll go back up. And then there's that player, when he gets knocked down, I mean, he's got a concussion, maybe one of his arms is broken, but, you know, he just, eventually, he just musters what it takes to stand up and just get back into the game, and and the guy's getting excited, you know, and he goes, I want to be that, I want to be that guy, coach, I want to be that guy. And the coach said, no, what I need you to be is that guy who's knocking all those guys down. And see, as Christians, what we do so often is we are playing defense. And it's time we stop doing that. It's time we stop playing defense and start playing offense, because Jesus is playing offense, and if we're going to play on his team, we need to learn how to play offense. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. One of the things I want to talk about today in this series, we've been talking about wisdom and the power of God and coming back together and what does the church look like if it operates in both those realms rather than just picking one, which so often we have. Um, but one of the questions that often comes is, why don't we see more power? Why don't we see the power of God move in more ways? I mean, if God's if God is who he says he is, why, don't he, why doesn't he just come down and do what he's going to do? And, you know, then, you know, all those people who oppose him, they'll see it and they'll go, yeah, you know, we finally submit to Jesus and we become a Christian. <laughs> right? And there, you would think that would be true. But I've seen people experience the power of God in a way that is absolutely indefensible. They cannot defend against the power of God and, and that God exists and that God is for them and all those things. And then watch them turn right around and walk away from God. And that blows my mind that somebody has the ability to do that. And it also blows my mind that Jesus doesn't chase them down and tackle them, right? Like, remember the, the rich young ruler comes... And Jesus challenges him. He says, hey, what do I have to do to, you know, to be right with God and all this? And Jesus said, hey, you need to, do, you know, these commandments, you need to do the commandments. He says, yeah, I've been doing all those since I was a youth, whether that's true or not, maybe, maybe not. Um, but he said, hey, sell everything you got and come follow me. And so what Jesus did, he wasn't making that, by the way, a statement to all of us as believers in the sense that you need to go sell everything you got and give it all away and come follow Jesus. What he was saying was, this is the thing that has your heart. You love money and you love your stuff. And it's got your heart. It's idolatrous. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying if you want to break free from that and come follow me, you're going to have to make a decision about who's in charge. Is it going to be your money and your stuff or is it going to be me? That's really what Jesus was doing. And so he says, well, of course, you know, um, sure, Jesus, I can't wait to sell all my stuff and come follow you. I've been, I've been wanting to do that for a long, long time. Is that what happened? No, he, the Bible said he walked away sorrowful. And then Jesus chased him down and tackled him and said, you will be a disciple. Right? And, and that bothered me. I'm like, you know, Jesus, if you really loved him. <laughs> but love doesn't violate. And that's a beautiful thing. It's also a scary thing. And so the same thing with us. If we want to walk away from Jesus, if we want to ignore him, if we want to pretend, if we want to say he's not real, you know, we, we can come up, we can justify it a million different ways. Especially in light of he's, he's demonstrated himself to us in ways that we can't even really argue with. But we still have the ability to walk away, and that's a fascinating thing. And in Mark chapter six, you kind of see this. Um, he's in, Jesus is in his hometown, and he says um, he couldn't do many mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few, a few sick people and he healed them. So he couldn't do many mighty works, but he was still able to do some. What's interesting was the way he did it was a point of contact where he touched them, which is an indication that the people he touched wanted him to touch them, right? So you see a, a group of people full of unbelief, and this is what he says, he marveled because of their unbelief. So as a town, as a people, they couldn't get past the fact that Jesus had been this, and now he's something different. And we have to decide, was he just a man, or is, or is he something altogether different? And so this fascinating concept where he says, the Bible says that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. like He's like, this is hard to capture, <laughs> right? Can you, imagine, can you imagine Jesus marveling at anything? And he marveled at their unbelief. He's like, "I this is, wow. And he couldn't do many mighty works there, even though he was the son of God, because he had put a limitation on himself. When he came to become as a man, he submitted himself to the Father. And if you go read the Bible, this is a fascinating thing, and this is helpful, as you step into the, the power of God, walking in the power of God, Jesus submitted himself in the same way that you and I must submit ourselves to, to the Father. I was talking about that during our worship time that Jesus didn't just go and do what he wanted to do. He didn't just go to all the hospitals and heal all the sick. That's not what he did. Everywhere he went, he was in submission to the Father's will and his purpose, all the way up to the cross where he said, hey, if there's any other way, let this, this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. Right? So he was, he was indicating and walking in a way that he was submitted to the Holy Spirit, to the power of God moving through him as a man not as the Son of God. He had limited himself so that he could model that to you and I and show us what that looks like. So he comes into the city, and even though he had the power to do anything he wanted, he would not violate their unbelief. Now hear this, one day he will. One day the Bible says um, that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess the glory of God that Jesus is Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. So you can, you know, the atheists can raise their hands against Him. They can, you know, cry out against Him all they want. But one day, every person and every being, including the devil, will be submitted to the glory of God. That's coming. But in the meantime, He's given you um, a will of your own. (laughs) And what He wants you to do is He wants you to take that will and partner with Him and find His will and then co-labor together on the mission that he's trying to send us on. We're all on the mission. Some of us are doing the mission better than others, and he's calling us to walk on that mission. And the only danger of us really getting in trouble as believers is when we forget that we're on somebody else's mission and we think we're on our own, right? And that's where we get in trouble. So here's a a picture. Again, um, this word is a really interesting word. It doesn't just mean a passive unbelief when it says he marveled marveled at their unbelief. Because, you know, I mean, people, I'm going to read a scripture in a second about another guy who had some unbelief, and he asked Jesus to help him with it. These guys didn't ask for any help. They are like, I, this is our unbelief and we're sticking with it. <laughs> right? But it, it wasn't just a, a passive unbelief. It wasn't just a refusal to believe. And this is what this word comes out in the original language. But it was an actual unwillingness to be persuaded. They, they had set their, their foot, they dug their heels in, and they said, I will not believe in you. Not, I, I need more proof, or I need more coaxing, or I need more demonstration. They had plenty of that. But that unbelief came to the place where he said, I refuse to believe. That's what unbelief is. It's a refusal to believe. Beyond, you know, again, being convinced. I, I get it. Some people are on that journey of being convinced of who God is and what he does. I was on that journey myself. But it's an absolute refusal to believe in God. That's, that's, as about, that's about as idolatrous and rebellious as a person can get, right? Right? So not everybody is going to come into the kingdom, because some people are just going to go, don't care, I'm going to do what I want to do, and that's how it's going to be. So how do you get past that? Um, it's submission, that's the ultimate version. So understanding a submission to authority is really what brings God's power, it's your faith, it brings his blessing, it brings a movement into other people's lives, it blesses you but also blesses others. So let me just read you this passage in Matthew chapter 8, I won't go through all of it, but it's the story of when Jesus was going to a Capernaum, a centurion came to him. You guys know this story, and and he's a a soldier. Uh, Mark and I talk about this a lot, because Mark works, he's high level enlisted, and he works with a lot of generals, and he understands authority in a big way, because he lives it every single day in that hierarchy of, you know, military power. And this guy did too. He was a centurion, and he said, "Um, Lord, my servant's lying at home paralyzed. He's dreadfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him, right? And this is what he said, "Uh, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to Come to my roof. He knew he was a he knew he was wasn't a Jew, and Jesus had come to the Jews. And so he was kind of giving Jesus a little bit of permission to say, Hey, you don't have to come and create a controversy. I get it. And this is what he said. It's really interesting. He said, All you have to do is speak a word, and my servant will be healed. And here's why he said that. It's very interesting. He said, For I also am am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does this. And then Jesus marveled again. That's what it says. When Jesus heard it, he marveled at his belief. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Other passages, he marveled at their unbelief. This one, he marvels at their belief. And he says, he said to those who were following him, assuredly, I say to you, have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Not even in the people who know me best. Here's a centurion, a Roman, who didn't grow up with this. And he gets, and he gets an understanding of faith that most of church people don't get. He goes on It says, Um, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. As you have believed. You can't just pick what you believe, right? This Belief has to have an object. You can't just, I believe, I believe. I I have faith in faith. (laughs) You can't have faith in faith. Faith has to have an object. Belief has to have an object. And this man saw who Jesus was, and he believed in him. It wasn't just, I believe generally, that you're a good, whatever. He believed in him. So, So what does that look like? Here's 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And here's why. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So God gives us his word, right? Jesus is the word, but he writes the word down. And he gives it says, hey, if you want to learn who I am and what I'm like, if you want to believe, if you want to grow in your belief towards me, here's how you do it. All the Scripture is given so that you can grow, so you can be adequate, so you can walk in the power and the wisdom that I've called you to walk in. You can be mature as a believer if you'll read the Word of God and you'll understand it and you'll submit to it, right? Acts 17, it's very interesting, it says the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Um, and they went to Berea, and it says that when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were noble-minded, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, and here's why. They received the word with great eagerness. I know a lot of people, you know, on the power side, received the word with great eagerness. But here's the interesting part. It says, and they also examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So again, you can just go, I believe that God's going to do great things. That's wonderful. But that's abstract. And it's so easy to not, fo- uh, to not follow through because it's abstract. I say this about being on mission. Lost people are, are easy to pray for until you meet one of them and they get a name and they have a relationship with you and they're irritating and they drop the F-bomb so much that you're like, can you use another adjective, please, because that one's being worn out, right? <laughs> or maybe they're selfish or maybe they're, you know, I mean, whatever their sin is, it, it, it's, it's all fun and games until they have a name and they're an actual person in your life, right? And the same thing is true here. I, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's great, but what do you believe? Because there are claims that Scripture gives us. There's God's saying, I want you to come do this with me, and here's what that's going to look like. Karen said, you know, God's goodness, God's kindness, God's move, his act in the world, it looks like something. It actually looks like something, and that's what we're getting at. So here's the thing. So often we come into the things of God as Christians with a bias in however we grew up. Anybody in here grow up heathen? Raise your hand if you grew up heathen. Uh, me too. <laughs> I was 20 before I got saved, right? I was a good heathen. I was a very moral heathen, though. So most of my sin was on the inside. You couldn't see it because that's what you do in the South, right? Uh, how about growing up in the wisdom camp? Uh, Baptist, uh, Presbyterian. I mean, any of the mainline denominations? Anybody? Anybody grew up in a Pentecostal camp? Charismatics, anybody of those? A few of us, right? So I got saved into it. So here's the thing. You typically go and you read your Bible with a bias towards whatever you were brought, in, brought up in. If you, If you're heathen, you have a, a naturalistic worldview that you ha- it has to be broken in you, and you have to decide that you're going to believe a new worldview. It's not believing just for the sake of it. It's believing because there's enough evidence to believe. It's not, it's not just blind faith. That's not, God doesn't call us to that. But if you grew up in a charismatic mindset, you read the Bible with that filter in place. If you grow up with a wisdom mindset where the things of God, the power of God has been done away with, you grow up with that mindset and that's the filter that you look at scripture through until you see something different, until God challenges you to walk in a deeper, a deeper walk with him. So here's the thing, you cannot make God's word disagree with himself. But you do it. <laughs> I did it for so long. I got saved in grace and then I'm like, don't need grace anymore, I'll do it myself. Woo, come on, right? I'll be holy, I'll do, oh, Boy, I failed miserably, right? But then I learned about grace, and I was like, oh, that's not what I thought it was, and I had to do something different. Here's, here's the Westminster Confession, I won't read the whole thing, it's really long, but here's a part of it. So how do you go after the Word of God? It's simple. Nothing contrary to Scripture can ever be true. So you read the Bible, and it becomes the basis for everything that you see. It becomes your worldview. As you read Scripture, it becomes your worldview. But again, the danger is you're reading Scripture with a bias, And so you actually have to make a conscious decision to let Scripture tell you the truth even if you believe something different. So Scripture, the Bible says, it's like a mirror. You look into the mirror and you see what's actually true. And then it says, very interesting, you walk away from the mirror and you forget what kind of man you were. As men, we're better looking. You know, we look ourselves in the mirror and go, that's weird that my nose does that. But you walk away and you're like, I am amazing. (laughs) <laughs> women do the opposite right? women see those things and walk away and go I am, you know, I don't look good I don't like my hair whatever you know, I have weird feet whatever that looks like but we all do that we walk away from the mirror forget what manner of man we are that's why it's so important to stay in scripture and read and let the Bible let scripture train you so that you can be adequate for, and, and set aside and made purposeful for every good work right nothing contrary to scripture can ever be true nothing in addition to scripture can ever be binding it may however be true that's an interesting thing. That's the way a culture, you can talk about, hey, there's certain things in culture, like Paul dealt with uh, food that was offered to idols. And he said, listen, the food that's offered to idols means zero in the great scheme of things because the demons have no power over God. And if you pray over it, what God has made clean, you can't make unclean. It's impossible. However, if your brother's struggling with it, don't go to the temple and eat a steak that's been offered to an idol in front of a, a brother who's struggling, Okay? Let me put that practical sense because you're like, I don't understand that because we don't do that. What about drinking? Anybody grow up saying, you know, you absolutely cannot drink. It's completely, if you drink, you're going to hell, whatever. You know, we grow up with that kind of mindset, especially in the South. Except the Bible doesn't say that at all. One way I know is it talks about elders who are the leaders of the church, the fathers and the mothers who are supposed to be, you know, the model and supposed to be the example to everybody. And it says you can't be given too much wine. <laughs> right? You know what? It's easier to just go. You know, the Bible says, don't drink. I'll make a case for it. The Bible says, do not drink, ever drink. Here's, here's just a practical thing. If drinking is a problem to you, quit doing it. How dumb can you be and still breathe, right? It's like, don't mess with that, right? Don't do that. <laughs> it's, it, I can handle it. No, you can't. Stop it, right? If you drink the excess, the Bible says, drunkenness is a sin. Drinking is not a sin. So, what is that point for you? I don't know, but you do. Be honest about it and don't drink past that. If right? you're drinking so you can forget all your problems, you don't understand Christianity, right? <laughs> but the point is, maybe it's okay in the world, but it's not binding to you as a Christian. world does this, but it's not binding to you. And lastly, in essentials, conformity. In other words, the things that are essential about who Jesus is, about grace, about the things of the Spirit, all these things, um, conformity. You need to conform. You need to submit yourself to the kingdom of God. In um, non-essentials, liberty. So maybe somebody says, I don't believe we should drink. No problem. Um, I won't drink around you. I don't drink very often. Every once in a while I'll I'll drink, but very I mean, I I don't like it, right? I, I think you know it's an acquired taste, especially beer. Some of you guys drink beer and you're like, I love beer. I'm like, why? It's why. Right? But some of you guys say that about coffee, so and I like coffee, so teach his own. My point is, is <laughs> my point is is there's you have to have you can have Liberty for other people, in, in their, even in their growth. They're not there yet. So have some liberty for them and grace for them as they grow up in these things. And they're being trained in righteousness. And then lastly, it says, in all things charity, which is love and kindness. So um, you can, I can meet with other believers who, don't, who, have no, who have no desire for the things of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. But I don't shut them off and go, you know, because of that, you don't love Jesus. That's just not true. Right? So it's important. So, it, again, I read Mark 9, 24 said, Uh, immediately, the boy's father said, because I won't go through the story, but most of us know it, he's trying to heal him. Jesus said, hey, do you believe? And he says, I do believe. And he says something very interesting. He said, will you help me overcome my unbelief? I want to want to believe. (laughs) And Jesus honored that. I love that. He honored that. There's a place of unbelief that Jesus marvels at and goes, even if... There's nothing I can do to help you because you really don't want to believe. Right? And you know the difference in your own heart. And Jesus came after that and he paints this picture of this other guy who's struggling. The enemy's attacking his son and attacking his family. And he's, you know, feel helpless, especially when somebody else is suffering. You feel so helpless because you want so much to give to them and you can't. There's some things that they, they can only do for themselves or only God can do it for them. You cannot do it no matter how much you want to. And so this father is struggling with that, and he's like, if I if only believed hard enough, probably he was going through that, you know, it's my fault that I haven't brought my son through into healing and wholeness. And he said, I, I do have unbelief, obviously. Would you help me, Jesus? And Jesus is like, absolutely. I'm for that. It's powerful, isn't it? So here's the thing. I'm going to give you just four things that hinder God's power. But here's the, here's the thing about that. Every one of these, the foundation is what I just talked about. It's flat-out unbelief. It's a refusal to admit that God can do what he says he can do, because clearly he says he can. <laughs> and clearly, if you look around, he's doing it with others, so why isn't he doing it with you? Right? That's a good question to ask. So here's the first one. I said this one right off the bat, a naturalistic worldview. Um, it's a mindset that explains everything in natural terms and is extremely skeptical of anything supernatural. That was me. I had a naturalistic viewpoint, and when I saw God begin to do things, I was, I, I, I was skeptical. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if that's God. Until it started happening to me, it happened to my wife, who I know very well and trust, and it started happening to other people. Before I knew it, there was more evidence than I could shake a stick at, and I was shaking a lot of sticks, okay? (laughs) And God brought me through it. But what I was doing, if I wasn't careful, I I had become a practical atheist. I was saying I believed, but not really believing, and not really saying, God, I have unbelief, but would you help me with my unbelief? It's a struggle. We have to get past that. So as a result, the supernatural elements of Christianity are largely considered to be irrelevant. So this is what you find. You find it, it becomes irrelevant to the, to, to the world around you. So that's, that's why I call it... Do I need to answer that? <laughs> anyway. So it becomes irrelevant. It becomes. Ir- I'll give it a second. There it is. So it becomes irrelevant to, to the world around us. In other words, um, I become unhelpful to the world God sent me to help, right? And, and God's called us to be light in darkness. He's called us to be power in, in, in the places that are weak. He's called us to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out devils. He's called us to walk in the same power that he walked on and modeled and showed us how to do. He's called us to do that. And if we're not careful, we say we believe, but we don't do the things that believers do, right? We, we, we become, I said this last week, but we become understanders rather than believers, like, I, I I, trust that God's good. I trust that God can heal. But I've never prayed for anybody to be healed, and I've never seen anybody healed. I trust that God wants to save people, but I've never shared Christ with anybody, and therefore I've never ministered to someone who gave their life to Jesus. Right? So we have to be careful. So naturalistic worldview is easy to fix. You just have to make a decision that you're going to entertain the idea that the supernatural exists, and then let God just do what God does, be supernatural. So the second one is is. is Similar, it's theology that denies supernatural gifts. This is something you guys grew up in this. And it's the worst kind of unbelief because it makes it out to be godly. Here's what it does. It shows that unbelief is disguised as theology. And it's the worst kind of unbelief. Because not only is it unbelief, it doesn't want to help belief. It refuses to believe that God still does what he says he will do. So this is cessationism, right? Right? And there's a battle going on between, I said this, the camps, between the wisdom camp and the power camp. And, and the power camp is easy to pick on because oftentimes it's really immature, has been in the past, it's getting better, but it's immature so it's easy to pick on. So there's a famous pastor who started a conference and it's called Strange Fire, you can go look it up, I won't call him by name, even though Paul called people by name, so it's okay if we did. But he, he goes after the supernatural and he says that these, that these people are doing more harm than good. And again... He's consistent with Paul because Paul said the same thing to the Corinthian church. But the difference is Paul went after them to try to help them walk in the supernatural power but, because they were doing it immaturely, not, not throw it away. So, so Paul's version was, hey, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Let's save the baby. But let's do throw out the bathwater because it's nasty. And this other version is let's throw out the baby, the bathwater. Let's throw out the idea that there is a baby or is bathwater. Everything's bathwater. There's no baby in this mix. Right? And, so, and that's very dangerous. So it, this is in a nutshell what it is. It's the view that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, such as healing tongues, prophetic revelation, pertain to the apostolic era only, served a purpose that was unique to establishing the early church, and passed away before the canon of Scripture was closed. Let me give you an example. This is where the Scripture comes in play and how they use it. First Corinthians 13. Love never fails. Anybody read this passage? We, we do this all the time uh, in weddings. When I do weddings, I read this sometimes, even though it's not really a wedding verse. We use it for that, but it's really what we're supposed to all live in as believers. Love never fails. Whether they're prophecies, they'll fail. Whether they're tongues, they will cease. Karen mentioned this this morning. There's no need for healing in heaven. Everybody's healed. No need for revelation in heaven. You're standing before him. You'll be known, you're will known as, you'll, as you'll, you're known, right? So no need for any of that stuff, but here it is, and this is what he's saying. Someday this is going gonna, is gonna to be unnecessary, He said, whether there's knowledge, that's a problem. Knowledge is not a gift. Knowledge is just knowing. He said, whether knowledge, it will also vanish away. So those are two different things. It's helpful to understand that. And he goes on. Um, He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. That's why it's so helpful to be in team when we do ministry like this. Uh, That's why we gather, why Karen and I were talking earlier about, hey, what is God doing here? What are we trying to see the Holy Spirit administrate? And and we're we're managing it. We're trying to figure it out. And we don't always get it right. So sometimes it's a little bit confusing, but we're doing the best we can with what we have, and it's limited. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. So give us some grace, (laughs) and we'll give you some grace as you're learning it as well, right? But this is what he says. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away with. And so they take the scripture and they say, when that which is perfect has come is the church. Or the Bible, canon, was completed. Once that's established, we no longer need those gifts. They use that verse to say what I just said. And whole swaths of entire denominations and thousands, even millions of Christians... Walk away in unbelief because some knothead said that this verse says something it doesn't say. They're super exegetical until it messes with their, their doctrine, their personal doctrine, their favorite doctrines. And so here's the thing. I know as a pastor, I've had to learn to submit myself to the Word of God. And I come across things and I go... Wow, that is not at all what I've been believing for twenty years. So what do I do? Well, I can't get up and tell everybody I missed it. <laughs> well, I do, <laughs> right? But but you guys all know I miss it anyway. So it's like because you know me, I don't. You like okay, and you know my wife knows me, and so you you know you pray for her often. I'm, you know I miss it, right? But that's the problem is they read this and they go. We're not seeing what we think or what, we, what Scripture says we ought to be seeing. So rather than humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, we're not seeing what you obviously say we should be seeing. What we do is we, we in pride, we create a doctrine to fit our unbelief. So our theology, our unbelief is hidden then in our theology. It's a very, very dangerous place to be. Don't do that. <laughs> another, another way that hinders the power of God is pitting power against character. I've talked about this in the two different camps, right? We've seen this. So here's a false idea that we are somehow forced to choose. I hate to use the word binary because the world's trying to use it in a different way. But that forces us to be binary about the decision. That I have to either have character or have, you know, the love of God or whatever. <laughs> or, sorry, character or the power of God. So if I go after the power of God, then somehow I lose character. And the problem is you've seen this. There's been excess. But there's excess in the wisdom camp as well. It's just easier to hide. So what does this look like? Um, This is uh, very interesting in Scripture. Um, This is 1 Corinthians 12, 31. And I want you to notice 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. And there's one in the middle. I just started reading some of that. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. But I want you to notice where the love chapter is sandwiched. In, in the Bible. Because remember, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He said, you're getting it all wrong. You're doing the gifts wrong. The answer is, you know, don't stop doing the gifts. Don't stop moving in the power of God. The answer is, you're, you're doing it wrong. Here's the right way to do it. Remember, Timothy said, I, I, the Word of God is ad, It's going to help make you adequate. It's powerful. It's a two-edged sword, but it's powerful, and it'll help make you adequate. It'll get you there. So here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 12, 31, last part of 1 Corinthians 12, where he talked about the gifts. But earnestly, it's a very powerful word, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. People who are from that other camp who don't want to believe in the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they read this and say, but earnestly desire the best gifts, but you shouldn't do that because the better way is to love. It's not what he says, because here's why I know. Because then it says, 1 Corinthians 13, won't read it, but it's love, maturity, Christ-like, Christ-likeness, right? Don't use the gifts outside of this is what he's saying. The gifts should be in this category of love. And then verse 14, 1, 1 Corinthians 14, so 12 and 14, sandwiched by this one. First, first verse says, pursue love, so right, affirming that. And then he says, and desire spiritual gifts. So two places. He puts love in the place to say, here's how you do it right. But he sandwiches it in two places. He says it on the front side, says it on the back side, so they would not miss it, and yet we miss it. Right? Because again, our bias says, well, God doesn't do that anymore. So here's the thing. I can't say that those gifts no longer exist if the Bible doesn't say that. So they're not in opposition. This character and wisdom, sorry, character and the power of God, wisdom and the power of God are not at odds with each other. You can have the power of God and walk in wisdom with the power of God, and you can walk in wisdom and recognize, recognize that in wisdom, the power of God must be available in you and through you. And if you don't, what we do is we limit the mission that we're on to rescue people's, and rescue people's lives. Let me give you an example. I've shared this before. A friend of mine came to visit me. I was, I was an associate pastor of a church in Texas. And he came to visit me. He was a prophet. Um, I know that freaks some people out because, like, do we have prophets today? And the answer is yes. They're different than the Old Testament prophets. That's a whole other teaching. So... He comes, and uh, his experience as a prophet was this. He was an Assemblies of God pastor. He was not real good at it because he was a prophet, <laughs> and he was outside a team, so he was always hearing what God was saying, just saying it, and he wasn't very pastoral, and he needed help in that, and if he'd had a team, it would have been a great church. But he would build big churches, and they would fall apart. And so he's in, a com- he's in a conference, and a guy calls him out, and he says, sir, will you stand up? And he says, oh, no. So he stands up, and publicly in front of everybody, he says to him, he says, Um, I work on pipes underneath the sink. What am I? And he goes, you're a plumber. He goes, I work on wires inside a wall. What am I? He said, you're an electrician. He said, stop trying to figure out what it is and just do it. And he said that set him free to walk in the prophetic in a way he'd never been because this guy called out something that was the deepest part of him of, of the struggle that he was involved in, supernaturally public, and he became, he said, after that it was easy. I recognized what God, what God was doing. I saw it in scripture, started walking in. So he comes to visit me in Texas. We're having lunch after the service. It was, a, it was not a great service. We're having lunch after the service. This family comes over because I'm also the youth pastor. They come over, hello, Pastor Dave. It's nice to see you and their kids. You know, it's a big family. And there's this grown daughter. She's like 20 years old and she's dark. You know, she's dressed Gothic and this whole thing. She's not happy. Obviously, she's visiting from out of town. And he says, uh, they say, oh, this is our daughter, you know. And ultimately, like, "Uh, you know, we're sorry. pray for her. (laughs) Right? They didn't say it, but they said it. (laughs) And, And he looked at her. He said hello to them. And he looked at her. And as he did, he heard the word of the Lord in his heart he just doesn't care. He's like, don't care if you like it. I'm trying to learn how to do it well, but honestly, don't really care if you like it. I'm going to obey the Lord. And he looked at the, the young woman. And he said, can I say something to you? And she said, now, oh, no. The, you know, the preacher guy's going to say something and shame me and guilt me even more than my family already does. Right? And he said, um, I hear the Lord say to you. <laughs> this is at a restaurant, by the way. He says, I hear the Lord say to you that um, you fit in the kingdom very well. You just don't fit in the church very, very well. And that's okay. The church will figure you out eventually. I was like, well, could we order dessert? Because, you know, because now the family's super awkward. The family's all pious and holy, except for God was like, that's fine. Love you too. But you guys are beating this little girl up, and I love her, and she's in my kingdom. And you don't get her because she's different than you. And maybe try to learn to understand her rather than just dump guilt and shame and condemnation. And, you know, Maybe just do that. Maybe give her some grace. Maybe they tried. I don't know. My point is, is that God comes and he uncovers this. And that little girl would, have had that not happened, without the power of God, she'd have come that day, been beat up by our family, been beat up by that church service. She'd have walked away with, with the thought deeper in her heart that God doesn't love her. He only wants to guilt and shame her. That she's never going to be good enough. That she doesn't fit. That he doesn't know her. All of those things would have been going on in her head. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. She just broke down and started weeping in the restaurant. Without a shadow of a doubt, that day, that young girl's life was changed. Why? Because this guy moved in the power of God with the wisdom of God that did not look like wisdom. Because, you know, those things are reserved for church services, right? See, that's the wisdom of the world. That was inappropriate. God's like, you I don't really care about appropriate. (laughs) I'll show you what's appropriate. My power moving in people's lives is appropriate. This morning, we went and prayed for Larry and took some of the service, and I love, I appreciate Diane stepping up because we were a little bit overwhelmed with what the Lord was saying and doing, and and Diane stepped up, as good elders do, and you know, her and Alan, and and, uh, she said, hey, this is what's happening, (laughs) and I was like, oh, that was helpful, (laughs) when I should have been the one who came and did that, but the whole point is, is we love you guys, but God's talking about Larry, and he's wanting to... Bless Larry, and he's wanting to minister to Larry, and there's a word that's coming, and we want to act on that word, we want to take God at his, and, and if that, you know, you sitting there going, why is the worship service going too long? Well, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Right? Because what if the Lord wants to come to you during the service? See how it works? It's a beautiful thing. So here's the last one, fear of deception. This is an interesting one. We're so afraid, if I did get into the gifts of the Spirit, I'm going to get it all wrong, it's going to be a mess. Matthew, this is where we get this from, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Be careful. Don't be a false prophet, right? Here's what's interesting. Listen to the very next, if you read the Bible in context, it will help you. Listen to literally the very next verse. Remember how Corinthians 12, and then 13, and then 14, in context, you can see exactly what that scripture says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves but you'll know them by their fruits. So you don't have to worry about deception. You'll know. Just look at their fruit. I believe in God. Whoa, whoa. See, God do great things, right? Look at the power of God moving among us. Oh, must be God. I don't know. What, what's the fruit? Is the fruit love, <laughs> right? Is, is the fruit glorifying God? Is, is the fruit humility? What, what's the fruit of this stuff that's going on? Because here's what it says in Matthew 7, another place. It says, many will come to me in the day saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. I never knew you. You might say you know me, but I don't know you. Some guy, I read this one uh, place in Scripture, and he said, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were participating. Uh, that they were actually doing miracles and signs and wonders. Maybe God was using them to do that. That's fine. And and they didn't even know him. That's possible. But more likely, they were in a company of people who were doing it. Right? They were known as power people. (laughs) But they not only didn't have power, they also didn't have wisdom. They didn't have love. And they didn't even know who Jesus was. He goes, I don't know you. I've tried to come to know you. You won't let me know you. You're stuck in your unbelief. So here's the thing. It's about discernment, really. Uh, you, have to, you have to trust that the Lord will show you, right? Because that, that was my prayer. When I saw the stuff that's going on in the Pentecostal charismatic world, I said, oh, no, I don't know anything about this. I am not prepared. Not only did I not come from the wisdom camp, I was a heathen, right? So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even have wisdom to start with. I was starting from nothing, <laughs> a terrible naturalistic view. And, and the Bible says that he gives one of the gifts is the gift of discerning of spirits. Not the gift of discernment. That's not a thing. Stop saying that. (laughs) It's the gift of discerning the spirits. You can discern. There are people with a gift who can discern whether this thing that's happening is God moving, uh, a person's own spirit moving, or the enemy moving among us. And I've seen all of those happen in a meeting, in the same meeting. I've seen the power of God move, and I've seen people move by their own spirit, emotionalism and all that stuff, and I've seen the demonic try to break in and do some things in the same meeting. And God said, that's why I give the gift, so you know. But here's what's really interesting. Um, a fear of deception doesn't protect you from deception. I'm going to say it again. A fear of deception doesn't protect you from deception. Just because you're afraid of being deceived doesn't mean you're going to not be deceived. It just means you're going to be fearful and deceived. So how do you fix that? The existence of counterfeits, we all know, is there. How do you, you know how they teach bankers how to recognize counterfeit money? Anybody know? You handle the real thing. You love truth. This is what, how you see it in Scripture. You love the truth, and when you love the truth, and you know who Jesus is, and you study to show yourself approved, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. It doesn't mean you, you study so that God will love you. That's how we read that sometimes because of our bad theology. But it says study to show yourself approved, a workman that does that. You can, you can work and do the work of the kingdom, and you don't have to, you're not going to get it wrong. You don't have to be ashamed because you won't get it wrong. You can know the truth, the Bible says, when you know the truth, what will it do for you? Set you free, right? So you can walk in the freedom. So let me, lastly, let me just tell you this story, and we're going to be done. Um, some of the fear, where all these things come in, some of the hindrance is at the end of the day is I'm not sure I can actually know. That's the question. That was one of my questions. Can I actually know? Can I actually not be deceived? Can I actually get to the place where I can actually know things and be okay with it, right? Can I be confident in what God is doing and the power and the wisdom that He's given us? So let me just read you the story. This is Daniel. It's not up on the screen, but it's, um, it's in the Bible. <laughs> it says, uh, this is Daniel 2, 1 and 2, if you want to follow along. It says, one night during the second year of his reign, Neb had such disturbing dreams, he's got a long name, that he couldn't sleep. So he called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. And this is what they said to him. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. <laughs> So this is what the king said to the astrologers. I'm serious. Now, this is a New Living Translation, okay? So it's paraphrased. I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Whoops, right? It's, it's good to be astrologer until that happens, right? And then it says, uh, the astrologers, astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. Could have been said... No one of earth could tell the king his dream. It would have been just as accurate. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. Brother, we have limitations. I'm paraphrasing a paraphrase. That's horrible, right? Don't do that. (laughs) So the king's demand is impossible. Listen, no one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among us people what an indictment nobody but the gods can do that and they don't live here except they do in you and in me right daniel two twelve. the king was furious when he heard this and he ordered that all the wise men of babylon be executed that'll clear out the universities wouldn't it <laughs> anyway it's another story Verse 17, then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask, you think, urge them is a good word? He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret. The secrets of God are tied to his mercy. That's interesting. So they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. In other words, are we any different? So are you? Are you any different? Than the people around you. Right? Verse 19. That night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. That night the secret of God was revealed to Daniel. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. Isn't that an interesting verse in the Old Testament, right? He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength, Right, or wisdom and power. You have told me what we asked of you, and revealed to us what the king demanded. While your majesty, so this is, he's talking to the king now, while your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen, and it is not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream. Listen to that. It's not because of my knowledge, my wisdom, my study, the fact that I went to seminary or Bible college, the fact that I have a a PhD. None of those things is how I know this secret. Because the only way to know this secret is to know the God who reveals the secret that only He knows. But it didn't come automatically. They prayed and they said, God, would you Reveal this secret, secret so we also don't have our limbs torn from our bodies and our houses turned to rubble, right? He who reveals secret, secrets has shown you what's going to happen. It is not because I'm wiser that I know the secret of your dream, but here's why, but because God wants you to understand what was in your own heart. God wants to reveal the secrets of your heart. Not to judge you, but so you know. So you can deal with the things that you didn't know were causing you problems and issues. God wants to reveal the secrets of your wife's heart. Why? Because he loves her and he wants to minister to her through you. God wants to reveal the secrets of your work, your, your friend at work, their heart. He wants to reveal your, your girlfriend, whatever. He wants to reveal the heart. Why? Not so you can judge them, because again, remember the sandwich. With love in the middle, right? The power of God has to have that sandwich. Otherwise, it's just two pieces of bread and, you know, that's a biscuit. That's fine, but it's, it's not a hamburger, right? And this is the point. God says, I want to reveal things, not because I want to judge you. If I wanted to judge you, oh, wait, you're judged already. That's what, you know, John 3, 17 says, right? You've been judged already because of your sin. But I came so that you could be set free from that. So listen to this. Um, this is 1 Corinthians 2, back into the New Testament. We do, however, speak a message. Again, this is back to the Corinthian church. He's talking about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. So a message of wisdom to mature believers, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time again. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They, they didn't get what Jesus was doing, or they wouldn't have done what, to him what they did. Verse 9, however it is written, and I want you to hear this. If you haven't heard anything I've said today, hear this scripture. I want, however it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what has no human mind has ever conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Recently, someone shared this verse and said, We don't know what God is doing in this world and they use this scripture. We don't know because, you know, eyes not seen, ears not heard, what God has prepared for those who loved him. So you just have to trust God. We don't know what he wants. So you just have to, you know, at the end, whatever God wants, he gets, right? That's the theology. Except for that's not biblical at all. Yeah, I know. I actually read the next scripture. Right? This is what the next scripture said. These are the things... God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells within you if you're a believer, in your mortal body, and it will quicken it. The Spirit of God will talk to you. It will prompt you. You'll feel. You'll sense. Mark said when I shared that word about the the lion, he said, "I, I saw this picture in my head. Don't know if that's just for me or for the body. And I said, you know, let me pray into it and see if it's for the body. It was. It was the body. It was for you and I. But he didn't know that. And he had a sense. And he grew up in the wisdom camp. <laughs> right? And he's moving into walking in greater power. Why? Because he, he trusts the wisdom of God. But he also recognizes that the Spirit of God is revealing things to him. Because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is, is dwelling in him. Dwelling in you. These are the things... This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So here's the thing. How do you do that well? I read this before, open with it, closing with it. 1 Corinthians 1. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. You want to walk in wisdom? Submit to Jesus. You want to walk in power? Submit to Jesus. Because this is what it says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 or 5, it says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So that your faith isn't, I convinced you or I had a really good argument. You get really good arguments in school. Nothing wrong with really good arguments. But I know a ton of really good arguments that turned out to be a big pile of not wisdom. <laughs> right? And you do too. So how do you do this? It's, it's not hard. It really isn't. It's not, I've got to go to spiritual boot camp. It's not that. It's, I submit to Jesus. And I say, Lord, same, the same spirit that dwelt in you, it dwells in me. He dwells in me. And I'm learning how to hear his voice. I'm learning how to trust him. So, what does that look like? Looks like a prompt. I went and prayed for Mike, not because God went into my head and said, "Dave Hill, Dave Lee Hill," in okay? case so I was wondering. Go pray for Mike. That's not what I, I saw a picture. I, the the ladder. I read the Bible this week, and I read the passage about the the former. I mean, the former and the latter reigns. And as I was sitting there, and I was, my heart was for Mike because he's struggling with that problem with his knee, even after two years and we're like, ah, if I could just heal Mike, I just go do it right now but I, in my own power I can't but I can answer the prompt for the Lord and go, Lord, what are you saying? And So I came to him and I said, Mike, it's a distraction, it's what I feel like the Lord is saying and he has to decide whether that's from the Lord and he obeys and goes after it, but I tell you what it did help and he told me what it, what it helped is it, it helped his discouragement right I want God to do it my way I keep telling him that, and he keeps ignoring me. <laughs> and you want him to do it your way. So stop it. Just stop it and submit and go, Jesus, I don't understand fully, but I can obey you. I don't need to understand everything to obey you. If you say, hey, go talk, because this is how it works. I'm going to leave you with this. It's practical. I'm going to get more into this. Sometimes I'm sitting at the coffee house, and the Lord, I'll see a person in the coffee house, and the Lord will say, I want you to go talk to that person. And I'll say, No. <laughs> Because I'm studying to preach, Lord, and you know how valuable preaching is to your ministry, and so I should really focus on that. And if you were really God, you'd know that. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. L- well, Lord, what do you want me to say? Crickets. Does he not know? Maybe he's thinking it up. You know what he's doing? He's going, I'll tell you. But first, go talk to him. Uh, This happens to me all the time. I'll I'll be praying. I'll be doing ministry sometimes Sunday mornings. Karen does this too. All of us as leaders do it. Mature. We we sense something. Uh, You know, one time I think with uh, Alec and Sage, there was was a word. I'm I'm not going to tell the secrets of your heart publicly. You guys are fine. But a word that the Lord gave me for them when we were praying for young people. And I looked at them. You know how I knew? The Lord said, I want to do something with them. I was like, what? Crickets. You know what it was dependent on? My obedience to the first thing he said. How much in your life right now is not going where you think it ought to go? Because somewhere along the line, you were disobedient to the heavenly vision. Right? Whatever the Lord said to you at first, you've ignored it. You've done your own thing. And because of that, you can't get the Lord to talk to you. Well, why would he? You're not doing anything he's saying anyway now. What what else do you want him to say? I changed my mind? Is that what you want him to say? It, it, honestly, it is what we want him to say, but he's not going to. Right? So here's the thing. I just want to challenge you. First of all, whichever camp you came from, lean into what the Lord is doing in you here and now. You've got some great people around you as, a, as an eldership team. We love health and wholeness. We, we, if we, we're going to risk doing some things in God, that if it goes south, we're going to come back up and go, Hey, everybody, that wasn't God. <laughs> we screwed that up. But we're going we're gonna to lean into risk to reach out and try to find what God is doing. But we're also not going to ignore the fact that we got it wrong. We're going to be wise about power. Right? And we're going to be powerful in our wisdom. So I want to just challenge you. if the Lord's Whatever camp you come from, if the Lord begins to prompt you and he says, you know what, um, when we went to Atlanta, Karen had been working in corporate world for years, and the Lord said, I don't want, I don't want her to work anymore. And I was like, no problem. I had a great job. Everything was going well. It's 2010. What could go wrong? No, sorry, 2008. What could go wrong? Right? <laughs> Everything went wrong. Within three months, I had no job, and we were kicked out of our apartment, and I was homeless. We weren't living under a bridge. We were living in somebody's guest house, but we had nothing and no money. And it very quickly ran out of our savings. And Karen came to me. and She said, hey, if you want, I can go back to work. We said, let's pray. Maybe God's changed his mind. No, we didn't say that. But we prayed and confirmed it. The Lord said, nope, I don't want you to do that. Somehow, we didn't die. Did you die, though? <laughs> parents say that to kids. And we got through it, and we saw God move in ways. we. I, personally, I had not seen Him move in, in, in those ways before. It was amazing. And at the same time, Karen, because she wasn't at a job trying to help us make it, she was able to build relationships and friendships that have literally lasted 15 years in some of the deepest most helpful, most precious relationships that we have ever had in our entire lives. Not just personal, but also kingdom connections. The conference at Northlands is part of that. That God is doing things through them that we get to enjoy because of the relationship that we have. And a lot of that is because she could go on walks with people. She could go visit. She could have tea. She could do those things. Why? Because she was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. But it would have been way more helpful if she was working. And I had to work through that. And we were good because we trusted the Lord and we watched his hand move in power every single time. And I want to encourage you, what has the Lord said to you? Make sure it's don't just pretend it's Jesus. Don't just make stuff up. Don't just wish it was Jesus. Don't don't be foolish. But some of us we really know God has told us about certain things, a relationship we need to stop, a thing we need to start doing, whatever. It doesn't matter what the thing is. And sometimes it doesn't even matter that it is that thing and it has nothing to do with the next thing in your life. It's just that the Lord says, I want you to obey me and learn how to obey me and trust me in in this obedience. Because when you do, I will work in you and I will work through you. But until you do, you're it. So how's that going for you? (laughs) I tell you, it doesn't go well for me. But the kindness of the Lord says, if you will just respond to what I'm doing, nothing on earth. Can hinder him from doing what he wants to do, not you, not the devil, not any enemy, not demons, not politics, not bro- nothing, can stop God from doing what He wants to do. But it's often connected to your obedience, and you step it out in faith, going, Lord, I, I'm not even sure I can believe, but will You help my unbelief? I want to want to believe. Teach me how. Show me so I can walk in this mission that You called me to. Amen. Won't you stand with me? We're going to close and not beat the Baptist to lunch. (laughs) Lord, we are so thankful, Jesus, that You... Lord, You came and modeled. Hebrews says that uh, in previous times, former times, Lord, You spoke through the prophets, through angels, through all these different ways. But in these last days, You have spoken through Your Son. Jesus, You are perfect theology. You are the model for not just... um, Lord, for anything, it's about how to obey the Father. And so you are the older brother who comes and rescues us and sets us free so that we can rescue our younger brothers. So, Jesus, would you do that, Lord? It's not just about a quality of life because, Lord, sometimes obedience to you means quality of life suffers. I get it. But, Lord, in the end, um, everything you ask us to do has a purpose and has a mission connected to it, Lord, and it has a greater glory in the heavenly realm, Lord, than we can ever understand about the glories here. And so, Lord, we just say yes. We submit to you. We lay down our our rebellion. We lay down our arrogance. We lay down foolishness. Lord, we just submit. We lay down unbelief, and we just believe you. take you at your word and receive every good thing that comes from our heavenly Father. So, Jesus, help our unbelief. In your name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you and minister to you. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.